Children may be dismissed for junior church. It's good to see you all. Feels like I've been away for a while, and turns out I have been away for a while. During the trip, we uh, we drove for about two days solid, 12 hours a day. And uh, as I was sitting there, I felt like asking the driver, are we there yet? You know? And uh, as, I, as I said that, I remember something my dad would always say to us. We'd say, are we there yet? And he'd say, yes. Now we're just looking for a place to park, he would say. <laughs> By the way, that answer didn't exactly satisfy either. Today, uh, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3, concerning the parousia, or the second coming of Jesus. Often we think to ourselves, are we there yet? Paul has an answer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He writes, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, another day of life on planet Earth, Lord, under your guidance and care. We are grateful to know you, Father. We thank you for Jesus who has made it possible. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for unfolding these things and explaining these things to our hearts and minds. Thank you, Father, for allowing this. Pray, Lord, that you'll be with us this morning as we uh, seek to understand these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The word parousia is a Greek word. It just means coming. But it has come to refer to the sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. From heaven to earth. Scripture also refers to this, the parousia, as the day of the Lord. In fact, Scripture indicates clearly that Christ will return at some point in the future. The exact time, however, is unknown and, I might add, unknowable to us. Of course, uh, that didn't stop a long history of sad guessing over the years. Remember the Millerites, a group of Adventists who... uh, sold everything they had and sat on a mountaintop waiting for the Lord to come in 1844. He didn't show up. They tried it again in a couple of months. Still nothing. Roman Catholic Church predicted that in 1825, with the demise of Protestantism, the Lord would return. Even the Presbyterians in 1650 and then again in 1695 and then again in 1763 thought they could figure it out. The Montanists, 156 AD, very early days in Christianity. The Mennonites in 1899 and 1891. The Mormons, Joseph Smith, made dozens of predictions. The Assemblies of God in 1934 and 35. Jehovah's Witness, 1874, 1878, 1914, 1925, 1975. Calvary Chapel, Sometime before 1981, the Anglican Church, 1588, the Anabaptists, 1533, the Catholic Apostolic Church, 1823, and others, many more. 
Notable that in 1635, the Lutherans came that Jesus uh, decided to uh, predict that Jesus would return. However, in 1989, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, decided to refute any end times claim, declaring that repeatedly things repeating. Let's try again here. Declaring that repeatedly taught by Jesus and his apostles is the truth that the exact hour of Christ's coming remains hidden in the secret councils of God. At last, a good idea. Paul says pretty much the same things. He says, I don't need to tell you because I've already told you. We know he is coming for sure, but we don't, we don't know when. But he will return. Then his victory will be complete. He will be the conquering Lord, not on a donkey, but on a stallion, a war horse. At that, at that point, his reign, which is at present in some ways only potential, and which many do not expect, ex- accept, will be total. He himself has said that his second coming will be in glory. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's like those legions of angels Jesus said he had available to rescue himself from the cross. Those legions of angels will in victory come with Jesus when he returns. The one who came in lowliness and humility and even humiliation will turn in complete, will return in complete exaltation. Then indeed, At that time, the name of Jesus, everyone will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. So this is both an encouragement and a solemn warning. It's like uh, in my house, your dad is coming home. Both brought elation and fear to me and depended on how I'd done that that week you know if I'd done my homework and been a good boy which was rarity usually uh, the dad's return would be fraught with anxiety you know because I knew the 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 talk in the garage was going to be uh, happening again you know and but other times it would be with exaltation knowing my dad would be coming and he would be there and he would be available and we could do things together so there is an encouragement in Paul's warning, but uh, in his, uh, his uh, encouragement here. But at the same time, it, was, it is a warning that he will come like a thief in the night. Which means suddenly, unannounced. Paul had spoken of this when he was with them, and he evidently counted on their having learned well what he was teaching. For he had no need to include additional information. But the Thessalonians want some idea about the timing. And Paul basically says there is one thing certain that we can't be certain, he says. But he says, while people are saying peace and safety, he will come. It's like uh, the whole culture of the denying humanity uh, is saying, nothing to see here, folks. Move along, no worries. Return to your homes, your lives, your distractions. There's plenty of time. Modern examples of this would be one of my favorites, Carl Sagan. He quoted, 
The sky calls to us. If we do not destroy ourselves, we will one day venture to the stars. The Kardashev scale, popularized by a, a fellow named Mikio Kaku, uh, he's on TV constantly, Discovery Channel and PBS. Uh, he's a uh, uh, theor theoretical uh, physicist, and uh, he studies astronomy, etc., astrophysicist. So uh, he has a lot to say about these things. But this fellow, Nikolai Kardashev, put together this uh, scale uh, that he uses to explain kind of where we are in, in our development as, uh, as, a, as a human race. He starts out with a type zero civilization. He says, that's where we are right now. We're primitive. We still burn dead plants for our energy. But next will be a type 1 civilization, and he, he claims we are teetering on that transition right now. Uh, this would be called a planetary civilization. Uh, we can use and store all the energy that is available to us on this planet. But that also is a developmental stage. He claims that the type 2 civilization, called a stellar civilization, will be one that uses all of the energy that is available to it in its solar system. So we'll be able to tap the, the planetary energy uh, of the solar system. The, even, the, even the sun itself will become our servant, you know, to supply our energy needs. But it doesn't stop there. Given enough time, a type 3 civilization will occur, called a galactic civilization that can control energy at the scale of its entire host galaxy. So the galaxy, we call the Milky Way, you can see it on a clear night without any streetlights. That galaxy will become the, the means by which we can obtain energy to do whatever our heart desires. As long as humanity refrains from destroying itself, it will continue, theoretically, forever, continuing to evolve and develop. Humanity can exist forever if it wants it bad enough. Forms of this idea can be seen in politicians. They predict eternal utopias. If only we can write the correct laws, if we can put in place the right programs, if we can create the right movement, everything will fall into place. Economists predict developing a universal prosperity. If only people had enough money. Philosophers claim perfect harmony is possible. If only we would think. Geneticists work on immortality. If only we can get the right genes in the right places and have them work together, we will live forever. And finally, militarists attain perfect security if only they have the right weapons. The Lord tells us in Scripture that He is our peace. He is our security. He is our gratitude. He is our blessing. He is everything to His people. Yet, humanity claims peace and security. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. Return to your homes and to your distractions. Paul uses uh, two words here, peace and security. The first is a state of concord, of peace, of harmony, and of well-being. Peace. Everybody wants that. Security comes along with it. 
stable and salutary circumstance. It's safety, security, no worries. When people seek this fancied security while they're actually saying peace and security, there will come upon them sudden destruction. That's the reality. According to scripture, outside of God there is no peace. There is no security. And you can say it as much as you want. Unlike modern days, it does not become true. John 16, 33, it says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, says Jesus. Well, people are saying peace and security outside of God's economy. Destruction will come upon them suddenly. Of course, this destruction isn't an annihilation. It's, it's, it's more of a deprivation of God's presence. It's a sudden separation from God rather than annihilation. If life is being with God in his economy, uh, reconciled to him through Christ, then destruction or death would be the absence of that. It would be the ending of that. So a guy named George Milligan, he writes this, he says, uh, the thought of utter and hopeless ruin means the loss of all that gives worth to existence. We seek worth, right, in our existence. Uh, How many people spend their whole lives chasing after that one thing that they want, that one thing that will make everything okay, and they never find it, except for us who've already found it. God has led us to it. He's opened our eyes and our ears. He's shown us the truth of our existence. And when we find Christ, then all is well. We are reconciled to our creator. And all that we need is provided for us by our heavenly father. God says in the Old Testament over and over again, if you obey me, if you turn from your sins, if you come back to me, then I will be your fortress. I will be your strength. I will be your vindication. I will be your recompense. I will be your peace and security. This sudden end that Paul talks about with the Thessalonians is is likened to the labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. And uh, I haven't experienced that myself, but I've seen it often enough. Where one day you're having breakfast and everything seems fine, and then boom, it is upon you. And there's no turning back. Off we go to the hospital. Of course, as the children progress, you're on your third or fourth or fifth or sixth child. Uh, sometimes the trip to the hospital is interrupted by a blessed event, very often the case. So once it starts, it comes quick. So Paul is using that as a, a very apt, uh, appropriate uh, uh, um, uh, illustration of the sudden uh, Uh, inevitable, permanent thing that is happening in this return of Jesus. The Old Testament uh, writes, Isaiah 13, for instance, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs of agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. And Jeremiah 4.31 4, For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor. Anguish 
as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. Uh, dramatic, scary. It's, uh, I don't know if you've, I, I get these anxiety dreams even after all these years of, of preaching. When I'm about to go and preach, I get a dream without, without fail. And the dream goes like this. I'm minding my own business, right? And I walk into this building and I'm greeted by a bunch of people, dignitaries, who say, oh, you're here at last, we can begin. And my response is, what? <laughs> and, and I'm supposed to preach to this huge crowd, right? And I'm looking around, I don't have my Bible with me. I don't have my, I don't have my sermon notes, you know? I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be talking about or who these people are, right? And yet there's this big crowd and they're pressing me and pushing me and wanting me to do this immediately. And I'm, I'm, I'm aghast. So I start to, I start to look for my, my notes and my Bible and I know it's just there and I go there and it's not there. So I keep looking and as I'm looking, the anxiety is rising and rising, right? And then I realize I don't have any clothes on. <laughs> it's a horror story. It just gets worse and worse and worse, right? And finally, I can't stand it anymore and I wake up and I go, oh. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you. <laughs> and I have a prayer meeting right there in bed. You know, it, it, it's funny to think of it that way, but imagine a circumstance where you enter into a situation that you didn't know was coming, but is lethal. Is lethal. What do you do? Well, you say, woe is me. Like this woman. You say, woe is me, I am finished. Paul goes on, he finishes this short passage by saying, and they will not escape. Sometimes the, the point of comparison with childbirth is the pain and the suddenness of it, but also the inevitability, the permanence of it is included in Paul's writing here. The latter point is underlined by the following, they will know not escape. It's the famous double negative, the emphatic form of the double negative. Now we know in English we hate the double negative because what it does is it cancels it itself out. Two negatives is a positive. And that's the opposite of what you want to say. But in Greek and Hebrew, they can pile on negatives, right? And the more negatives, the more knowing that goes on. N-O-I-N-G, not K-N-O-I-N-G. So anyhow, the more no's you use, the stronger the negation, right? So you can just pile those babies on. It's like in Pennsylvanian. You know, I speak Pennsylvanian. We would say, no, not never, right? That's a triple negative, right? It's three times more negative than a regular negative. The quadruple negative also is a Pennsylvania thing. It's, it's no, not nothing, never. So that's four times the negativity of a regular negative. So that's what Paul is getting at here in this passage. He's using a double negative. It's twice as much no as in any other passage, right? So he is saying there is no way that they are going to escape from this judgment. No way, no, not, never, no how, nothing. They shall by no means escape. So here is Paul's word. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
while people are saying peace and safety, nothing to worry about, nothing to see here, folks. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains of a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. How is this bleak outlook encouraging for people? Well, you've got to go back to the beginning. Jesus is coming. It's certain. He will return. We just don't know when. What do we do? Well, Jesus himself gives us a beautiful parable from Matthew 25. Then the kingdom will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went, went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Sudden. Right? Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, <clears throat> saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. Now if you look this word up in a dictionary, uh, in the Greek, the word means to stay awake, to be watchful. Yeah, I can, you know, that's pretty obvious. Watch. Stay awake, be watchful. It can also mean to be in constant readiness, be on the alert. Right? And that also fits well with the idea of a watchman, right? Watch. But there's a third meaning. It means to remain fully alive. To be alive. And I like that. Colossians 2.13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In Christ, you are alive. How do we prepare for Jesus' return? Stay alive. Be alive. Be what Jesus has made you to be. Let us pray.